My dear Heavenly Father, be with us, Lord, through the Holy Spirit to teach us this morning. We gather, Father, principally to know You and to be close to You. And then, Father, as You do the work that You do in our hearts, we can then turn to one another and minister to one another. For that is the reason the body of Christ gathers. So, Father, may this time be useful to You to build us up for that purpose. May we be uh, instructable, Father. May we be teachable. May we have a heart to not only learn, but also to do, Father, to not just be hearers, but to be doers of the Word. I pray, Father, that uh, You would have a a great work to do here at Oak Hill Bible Church. That uh, today in this teaching and in the weeks to come and in the months and years to come, that You might have a great work, Father, to do with this small fellowship and to reach many people in this city for Your glory. And uh, may today be one small step in that progression, Father, of good work in Your name. May the Holy Spirit teach us through the words I may speak. In Jesus' name, Amen. Open up, if you have your Bible, to 1 Peter. We're back in chapter 2 where we left off, looking at Peter's first letter. You know, when you all go somewhere new, when I go somewhere new as a visitor, let's say, or certainly I'm an example of that here. When I come here every week or come to visit in that first weekend and back in November, you're mindful of the fact that you want to make a good impression. That's just natural. Uh, One of the reasons why I tend to to like to wear a coat or wear a tie, it's not... Uh, it's not uncomfortable. It feels good. And beyond that, it just sets a good impression. So why not, why not set a good impression? Why not make the effort? That principle of trying to make a good impression is never more true than when we travel overseas, when we're in a culture that's completely different, among people that are completely different. There's a story once of our president and first lady, Barbara Bush and, and George Bush, the first President Bush, as Barbara accompanied him on a state trip overseas to Japan. They were sitting at a state dinner hosted by the emperor of Japan. Now, many of you, if you're a little older, may remember the emperor of Japan during World War II was Hirohito. And at the point when Barbara and George visited Japan, he was still alive. He was still the emperor at that time. And Barbara found herself seated next to the emperor at this dinner. And you know how that goes. You want to make small talk. You want to find some reason to converse. So she was noting that the palace they were in having dinner in was very young. It was very new. It looked very modern. And a lot of what she had seen in that country was not modern. It was quite old. So she made a remark to the emperor. She said, was the former palace so old and crumbling that you had to replace it with this new one? And the emperor tersely replied, no, you bombed it. (laughs) Okay, that's not exactly the kind of first impression you're trying to make when you're overseas representing our country. In fact, our country's typically don't rely on first ladies to provide that good first impression, maybe for obvious reason. We we typically rely on professional diplomats. We call them ambassadors, men or women that we appoint to be our representative, to carry out that role for us. We have ambassadors to countries. We have ambassadors to the United Nations, as another example. And, of course, we expect those diplomats to carry themselves off well. Well, except for the time in 1948 when our ambassador to the United Nations, Warren Austin, was trying to get warring factions between in Israel and, and the Arab nations to come to the peace table and talk out their differences back when, if you remember, the, the early period of conflict after the nation of Israel was established in 1948. And as he turned to the two Arabs and Israeli groups, he said, why don't you sit at the table and, and work out your differences like good Christians? I mean, we know what he meant, but that didn't come off very well either, did it? 
Not a good impression, right? It's important to make a good impression. And if you'll remember at the beginning of the letter, as we started studying this letter a few weeks back, we remember Peter addressing his readers here with two terms or two titles. You remember what those were in verse 1? He called us chosen people and he called us resident aliens or foreigners. Another term for alien is foreigner, a stranger. Now, we've been studying over the past several weeks what Peter meant by the term chosen. In all of chapter 1 and into the first half of chapter 2, what Peter's been doing is expounding on what it means to be chosen. You remember, he said we are to be set apart in the sense that we are to be like a light on a hill. He said we are to be holy apart from sin. We are to be a priesthood serving God's temple, which today we understand means serving the body of Christ, the temple as it exists today. Peter's expectation was, in other words, we would live in a manner worthy of that calling of having been chosen and set apart. Just live in a way that's consistent with that. And that's what we've been covering for the last several weeks. Well, today we move into a new section of Peter's letter. Today he's going to start describing what it means to be an alien, what it means to be a foreigner. Now, in our context as Christians, of course, he means what it means to be a foreigner on earth. Because we are no longer citizens of this world. By faith in Christ, having been born again, we have been born into a new citizenship. We talked a little about this already. We are now citizens of heaven. So in that role now, as a foreigner amongst strangers in this world, the Lord expects us to conduct ourselves in a way conducive to or consistent with that status as an alien. Look what Peter says today in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urged you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So this is really the beginning of a much longer section. We're going to only cover a part of it today, of course. But the section where Peter addresses what it means to be an alien or a foreigner We'll begin here in verse 11 and go all the way about halfway into chapter 4. So we're going to spend a little bit of time this week and next and probably once more, one more week after that, looking at what it means to be a foreigner. In particular, as we look forward into next week, we're going to cover uh, three major sections next week where Paul or Peter addresses what it means to be a servant, which for us today is an employee for the most part. Secondly, what it means to be a wife, what it then third means to be a husband. So we're going to get into some interesting things next week as they relate to being a good foreigner, being a good alien in this world. So here again, Peter in, this, in the verses we read starts by calling his readers and therefore us aliens. We've been born here physically, yes. And in fact, before we became Christians, we thought of this as our home. I mean, what else was our home? We had no idea that there was anything more. But and now as Christians born again by the Spirit, we now understand that we have a, a heavenly citizenship. We don't actually live here in the sense of home. We're visiting. 
We're here only for a time, a short time, relatively speaking. And in this short time, we really have no reason to have an allegiance to this world. There's nothing in this world that holds our attention or desire, or at least there shouldn't be. Because we actually have a much greater home, much better place that we will go back to. And in that future place will be the true riches, the true things we enjoy and, and will hold on to for an eternity. And in the meantime, we are here for a short time. Why are we here? I mean, it begs a question, doesn't it? God has saved you by virtue of your faith. That's done. There's no more for you or uh, there never was anything for you to do in order to be saved. By faith you've been saved, not by works, so that no man may boast. So why are you still here? Why am I still here? What's the point? Take us home, Lord. If that's where we're going anyway, and we've already been saved, and there's nothing I can do to add to my salvation, it just seems to beg the question, what's, what's the wait? Let's just get on with it. The, the question's answered with a very simple principle. There is still work for God to do in this world, and he desires to do it through his church. In the same way that he began to do it through the apostles, he continues to do it through his disciples. We are the disciples of Christ. So if there is work to do in the meantime, and if he chooses to do that work through us, then as an alien or a foreigner, we need to understand our role is to be busy about the work of God in ministry, in whatever form he gives it to us. But in the case of our daily lives and our daily choices, we must not do things or fail to do things that give us the ability to do the work we want to do. In other words, that don't ruin our witness, that don't stand in the way of our ministry. Because what a shame it would be if God gave us some time here on earth to do his work. And yet, in the way we conducted ourselves, we neutralized our ability to do anything of any value. Because of how we're perceived by the world. Because of a bad impression we're leaving in this world. That would be a real shame, wouldn't it? And that's what all Christians are at risk of doing if they don't understand this principle of living according to what it means to be a foreigner. As aliens, there are certain things that we don't do. And then there are certain things that we should do because we're aliens. For example, if you're traveling overseas and you want to make a good impression, there are certainly some things you would not do and likewise some things you would want to do in that foreign land. I mean, as an example, my wife and I have had the opportunity to travel to England on several occasions. And I, I really like England. I find that to be a, a country I enjoy going to. As an example of how I should behave if I'm in England as a foreigner, uh, one thing I'm not going to do is drive on the right side of the road. That's what I'm used to doing, but on the other hand, when I'm in England, that's a very bad thing to do. You won't do it for very long, let me put it that way. On the other hand, if you're in England, one thing you should do, if you come into contact with royalty, with the queen, is to bow or to curtsy. I mean, these are, these are practices that they've assumed you would know to do, even though you're not from that country. And if you don't do them, you will not make a good impression. You will not win them over, let me put it that way. Peter begins in verse 11 by speaking from the negative, meaning what we shouldn't do. What a good foreigner, a good alien, would never do while they're on foreign soil. In verse 12 and onward, which we'll cover in a minute, he begins to describe the positive. So before you get too worried about too much negative, he devotes one verse to negative, and he devotes from verse 12 all the way into chapter 4, talking about the positive, about what it should look like to be a good alien. So let's look first at what he says here in terms of what we should not do. He says, abstain from the lusts of the flesh, for they wage war with the soul. Now, this should sound somewhat familiar, especially if you've been here the last few weeks. You know, here's again another reference from Peter to not letting ourselves give, our, give over to or give into lusts that take hold from the flesh. We've read this already. 
It's similar in many respects to his earlier warnings. But he's going in a new direction here. He's not simply reiterating, don't sin, be holy, be set apart. He's already said that. This is different. He's going somewhere new here. He uses a Greek word here for abstain, apeko in the Greek, which literally means to hold back, to basically pull yourself back from something. Another way to say it is restrain yourself. Restrain yourself. I want you to picture a traveler, for example, who's perhaps at a dinner party, much like Barbara Bush would have been, for example. And in that context, as a stranger, as a foreigner, trying to set a good impression, you're about to say something, and then before you say it, you catch yourself and you realize, ooh, that might come off rude. That might sound inappropriate. I might offend them. I don't know if in this culture saying that is a good thing or not. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to remember my manners and I'm going to, I'm going to restrain myself. I'm going to pull back at the last minute and not let myself do something that could, in this case, potentially be considered rude. That's the sense of what he's saying here. At least in general, those things that your flesh wants to do that you know are unholy, you should be at all times mindful of the fact that they may leave a bad impression. I need to hold those things back. But let's get specific for a moment, because what, what Peter's saying here is not very helpful unless you understand an example or two of what it would mean, what it looks like to fall prey to the lust of the flesh. Because he's mentioned lust in chapter 1. He's mentioning them here again in chapter 2, but he really has never defined them. Paul gives us the best list in all of Scripture for what this list of lusts of the flesh would be, of what that actually looks like. You find it in Galatians chapter 5. I'll just read a bit of it to you here. Chapter 5, verse 19. Paul says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, which just means hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, Paul says, which tells us this is not an all-inclusive list. And then he goes on, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we don't need to take time here now to define each one. That's really getting too far off the point for the sake of this morning. Some of your translations, in fact, will probably use some slightly different terms for what I just read, which is helpful if you have access to multiple translations. Take a look at how they render some of these words. You'll get a much better understanding of the kind of behaviors that Paul is talking about. What's probably sufficient for us to note this morning is that in every case, these items, these, these activities, these sins that were in that list, they are all the antithesis of love, of agape love, the love that is unique to the love of God in us. Not eros, not, not a sexual or romantic love. We're talking here about brotherly love, the kind of love that is unique to Christian experience, that only God can show you how to love in that way. What do I mean by antithesis? Well, opposite is a way of putting it, but it's more than just opposite. It's like they're fire and water. They can't coexist in the same moment. One cancels out the other. You can't indulge in these desires and simultaneously show somebody agape love. Let me give you some examples. I cannot show my wife, for example, agape love. Again, here, not eros, but agape love, brotherly love in the Christian walk. I can't show my spouse that kind of love if in the midst of a moment I'm harboring jealousy or anger or envy. In the moments I give in to those emotions and those sins, the opportunity for agape love is lost in that moment. 
Similarly, I can't show agape love for my Christian brothers and sisters in this room or anywhere else as long as I am about stirring up disputes or enmity or dissensions. When people in a church context go around stirring up trouble behind other people's backs, as long as they are giving in to that emotion and that sin, for as long as it stays with them, they are not in agape love. It is impossible. The two do not coexist. Third, final example, I can't show agape love to the unbeliever, to the outside world, if at the same time I am promoting or condoning or participating in some kind of sensuality, which is lewdness, or some kind of sorcery, or drunkenness, or as Paul puts it, carousing. We call it partying. The the basic point here is that if I'm going to show those people the love that God has given me and try to use that as a witness for the sake of the gospel, that message is completely inconsistent and contrary to a message of, hey, your way of life is good and I enjoy it with you. You know, the, the, the stupid example I've heard on occasion of someone who says, well, what, I, what if I want to go in and minister to those men who go into the topless bar? I need to go in there and be with them. I've got to be able to minister where they are. That's nonsense. Because you have no witness in that moment. Your only witness in that moment is you're condoning that behavior and you consider it appropriate. If you care that much for those men, stand outside the door and when they walk out, talk to them. But you don't have to go to that next step. And I, and I use that as sort of an example of, by exaggeration, But there's lots of other uh, more common examples in our everyday experience where people want to, in some way, concede to the way the world lives in order to presumably be closer to them for the sake of the gospel. That's a dangerous kind of compromise, and it's a completely misinformed one. You cannot show agape love in the same sense as Christ demanded it when he says, love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. That kind of an expression of love cannot coexist with those kinds of behaviors. So when Paul looks at us, and and in the case of this letter, says, we cannot indulge in these behaviors. I believe that inherent in that is, is a message that when you do so, you've necessarily put aside the love, which is the necessary factor for bringing the message of the gospel. They will know us by our love, right? And when the love is absent, all they hear is talk. And talk without the walk doesn't go very far, nor should it. You know what Paul said that was interesting at the end of that phrase in Galatians that I read? He said, those practices are things that mark the unbelieving world. He says, they will be judged by it. Those who practice these things will be judged over them. The word practice here means to live according to them. It's a sense here of to make them your way of life. If these things mark your way of life, this is a common way of living for you, then you have every reason to wonder whether it is you've received the gospel in its true form. Because Paul says it's a distinction between Christian and unbeliever who will practice these things, meaning live according to them, versus who doesn't. And, of course, that leaves out for the moment the possibility of a momentary fall. We, we all experience those points in our life. That, that in itself does not have anything to say about whether we are Christian or not. But to practice them, to live according to them, to make them a way of life, to regularly go out and get drunk day after day after day and carouse and enjoy sensuality in one form or another or to be always angry and dissent, having dissensions and so on and so on and so forth. If that's the way you mark somebody's life, um, I don't see fruit there. And I think the scriptures are clear that that's somebody whose life may cause a concern about what's in their heart. We don't want to share in that. We don't even want to come close to sharing in that. That's why he says these uh, lusts, they wage war for our soul. He's talking here about the fact that the flesh body we still have right now is still essentially fighting for the chance to live out in those ways. 
And the soul that we have, the spirit that God has given us to contend with that flesh, is there to hold that desire back. To live in a holy way. And it's been empowered to do so by the Holy Spirit. But you have to wage the war because that flesh you have is still fighting for control and it's still fighting to, to give in to those lusts. The analogy I would use is like your, your flesh is like a man you're trying to drown for good reason. But in the meantime, you've got a man fighting for air and you've got to keep holding him down and you cannot let him up. Because as soon as you let him get above water and get a good breath of air, he'll take control again, at least for the day. In the meantime, Paul says, and as Peter has echoed, we need to wage war against those lusts. If you think about it, all Peter's asking us to do right now as a church is live in a manner consistent with the customs and the traditions of our home country. Wouldn't you agree? He's saying just live in a manner consistent with where you call home, heaven. Let me give you an example. If, if you were an explorer, let's say we had the opportunity to go to the other side of the world, do something, imagine, you know, do basically what many of the missionaries do as you talk about them from week to week. But now imagine it in some deep jungle or forest where you find the undiscovered tribe. You know the picture that I'm thinking of here, right? If you were to step into that culture, I know you would find a lot of very unusual practices and very unusual things going on. They'd be eating things that you and I you know, usually call an exterminator to take care of, right? They, they, they'd be wearing strange clothing, things that we would wash the car with, maybe, right? We, rags, for the most part, if you think about the stereotype. They would certainly be practicing strange rituals and customs within their family. You know, some of the bizarre things you might imagine them doing in their culture would be like, I don't know, teenagers picking up their room. You know, just strange things, things, <laughs> things we never see in the real world today, you know? And regardless, though, of what you found, regardless of what you actually saw happening in those homes, in those families, what I know you and I would do, and I know this because it's done with missionaries all the time, you would still prefer to eat the meals that you found back home, wouldn't you? You'd have people send you care packages. You would look for ways to make meals that you're used to for your family. Friends I know that live in Kenya as missionaries, they love it when people send them um, pack dry packages of spaghetti sauce mix or Kool-Aid or something that when they make it, it gives them a feeling of being home again because they can't find that where they are. You would probably continue to wear your same dress. I, I doubt any of you would abandon the clothes that you take for granted and start wearing you know, little buckskin or whatever is common in that place. I'm using the, the stereotype again, but you see my point. And I doubt you would pick up on their family customs, whatever those unique customs are. You would continue to come back into your home, whatever you called home there, and you would do what you're comfortable and familiar with. In other words, you would live in their world, but you would not be of their world. You would simply be present with them in that world. You'd remain distinct. You'd remain who you really are. That's all Peter's asking for. He's not asking us to do anything out of the ordinary when you consider that what we do when we go elsewhere in this world is exactly the same thing he's asking us to do here as a Christian. Just live according to the customs of where you now call home, which is heaven. Now, I'm going to give you credit, though, for one distinction here, one, one difference between my example and what Peter's saying. In the case of my example, you had to get up, leave somewhere, go to another place, and then by virtue of going, you found yourself to be a stranger. It worked opposite, though, in the case of our Christian experience, right? We didn't go anywhere. We just found the world around us suddenly turned upside down. Suddenly, where we used to call home is now the strange place. The people we used to call our neighbors and friends in that sense, now they're strangers to us spiritually. They're now the opportunity for witness. But we didn't have to actually make a decision to go somewhere. It was done to us in a spiritual sense. That distinction is important because it reminds us we have to work that much harder not to slip back into the old way. 
But other than that, it doesn't change the principle. You're still a stranger now. You're still not of this place anymore. You still have an obligation to behave according to where you were from. Because now you're, you are the ambassador for Christ while he's gone. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, meaning if anyone is a believer, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What Paul is saying is the gospel, a ministry of reconciling people to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that ministry was given to all of us as part of the church. And then Paul, Paul goes on. He says, God, namely, and this is naming what that ministry is, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul says that's the ministry we now each have by virtue of faith. We have become ambassadors. You may not have signed up for uh, the, the foreign service. You may not have signed up to be an ambassador Hey, surprise, you're a foreign ambassador to the world you find yourself in now. So how does an ambassador act? If we're not supposed to do these other things, what are we supposed to do? Verse 12, Peter begins, as I mentioned already, this long discourse on how an ambassador acts. And he starts here by saying, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Did you catch that? Among the Gentiles. What does he mean? I keep your behavior appropriate among the Gentiles. By the way, in case you didn't know, unless any of you here can trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham, you're all Gentiles, along with me. Peter, I think, could have meant one of two things. First, he could simply have meant that the Jewish believers who received this letter in that day were being asked to carry themselves in an upright way among the Gentile nations where they found themselves living. Remember where he addressed the letter? It was to the regions of Asia Minor, current-day Turkey, which was outside Palestine. This is not where Jews normally would have lived. This was to a group of Jews who had left their home country and were living out amongst Gentile nations. So he could have just been saying, hey, live in a, an upright way amongst those Gentile nations. That's true enough. I don't think that's wrong. But I think Peter has a broader point. I think he wants us to go one step further. And if you understand some of the history around when this letter was written, you really begin to appreciate why he's saying this right now to these people. He's talking here about how the church as a whole, was viewed by the surrounding pagan cultures dominated by Rome. And when he says Gentiles here, he's talking about these pagan nations that were all around them that were Roman, under Roman occupation or Roman founded. Look what he says carefully in verse 12. He says, his readers, meaning the Christians who received this letter, were being slandered by this same group of Gentiles, the ones that he says you need to be excellent among. These are the people that are slander. Remember what slander is? Deceit and malice mixed together. Lying about someone in order to hurt them, more or less. These Gentiles, he also says in verse 12, were uh, calling the readers, calling Christians, evildoers. The word for evildoer in the Greek, kekopoios, it literally means criminal. So I want you to get a picture here in your mind of what was going on. Peter's writing to a group of Christians who were living amongst pagan cultures, in the realm of Rome's control. And these pagan cultures were turning to one another and saying, those Christians, they're criminals. And they were slandering them with that statement. 
Now, Peter suggests, and I think it's clear if you know the history of the church in this day, it was this slander that became the basis for some of the early persecution of the church under the emperor Nero. He suggests here in this letter, and we'll look at this more here in a minute, that this slander was the first stage of that persecution. Remember what Hitler did when he wanted the nation of, of Germany right before World War II to rise up and unify under his authority? He picked an enemy, an internal enemy, and by slandering that internal enemy, he was able to turn the nation against a, a, a subgroup, a, a, a small minority within its own country. And by making them the enemy of all the ills of the nation, he gave them something to rally around. Of course, what was his target? The Jews living within Germany. It's interesting how the Jews continue to be a target throughout history. There's no coincidence in that. The enemy is work, at work in that at all times. If you look at verse 12 and you look at how he says, I want you to be excellent, which means commendable, I want you to understand Peter's first concern is don't give any credibility to these false accusations. Don't give any truth. I mean, the worst thing you can do if the world's calling you an evildoer is do evil. Because now they've just seen confirmation of the accusation. So whatever you do, don't give any credit. And the reason he says this is because they were living in dangerous times. I don't know how many of you know the history of the church at this point. The letter we've said already was written around A.D. 64. And in A.D. 64, the Roman Emperor Nero had begun, just barely begun, to persecute Christians. It was based on an event in the city of Rome that occurred on July 19th, A.D. 64. There was a fire that broke out in one of the small shops that made up the Circus Maximus. You want to think of a Circus Maximus as being like a giant bazaar, giant uh, merchant fair, that kind of a thing. Very prominent in the center of Rome. And then when this fire broke out, it spread rapidly to many other regions within the city of Rome. And it raged for somewhere near nine days and destroyed a large section of the residential districts of the city, particularly some of the upper class residential districts. While this was going on, Nero wasn't in the city. <clears throat> Nero was actually uh, away from the city. And in the time that he was away, uh, the rumors were that rather than come back to help assist the city, he simply wrote music for himself, kind of an ode to Rome as it burned. One of the residential districts that was spared, interestingly enough, of all the places that were not burned, one of the most prominent was an area on the other side of the Tiber River that was principally a Jewish population, the Jewish residents of the city. So it was interesting that the Jewish residents were spared the fire. Uh, Nero seized on this. When he returned to the city and he began to hear uh, a lot of the rumor that he had allowed the fire, then the rumor turned into he started the fire, and the city began to turn against Nero, claiming that, oh, you just wanted to rebuild it anyway. You let it burn. You made it burn. Nero then, as a defense took up slander of the Jews, and he began to blame the Jewish population in Rome for having started the fire. That led to persecution breaking out against them. About the year 49 AD, this is going back a couple decades earlier, Emperor Claudius had already banished some Jews and some Christian Jews from the city because they had already gained a reputation for upheaval, for fighting with one another in the synagogues and creating civil disturbance. So, I want you to see the pattern that Peter is building on here. In A.D. 64, when he writes this letter, one thing's already true. Jewish Christians and Jews generally in the city of Rome were known as troublemakers. They were known as people who wouldn't keep the peace. Then the fire, then Nero, and now Nero's slandering of the Jews and of the Jewish Christians that they were the ones who started the fire. That began the very earliest stages of persecution in the church at the hands of the Romans. 
there's an ancient Roman historian by the name of Tacitus who uh, wrote about the early persecution of the Jews. I want to read you just a quick paragraph of what he says was started under Nero. He goes like this. He says, Consequently, to get rid of the report, meaning to get rid of the report that Nero had started the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, meaning Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, but of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired." That last reference there to burning them for nightly illumination. You ever heard the term Roman candle? That term literally comes from this time when Nero would take Christians and tie them to a pole and set them up upright and then light it and burn them for light at night, usually around his temple at parties. So Roman candles were literally burning Christians in this day. Now, as horrible as that is to consider and as wrong as all of that was, what is Peter's command to the church? Fight back? Oppose Nero? Oppose Rome? These evil people who are killing Christians without cause? No. He says, don't cause trouble. Be excellent in your behavior. Be commendable. Because although almost certainly those accusations were largely false, it's been my experience, and I think this is probably true for all of us as well in here, that it's hard to make a rumor stick unless it has some basis, some kernel of truth buried deep down inside. You know what I mean? I mean, if Christians had uniformly been the model Roman citizen, who would have believed when somebody turned around and said, they're criminals, they're troublemakers? That kind of a report only has the ability to get a toehold if, in fact, there is some history to it. And I think that's what Peter's concerned with here. And in the face of that, he says, I want excellent behavior. Be good neighbors. Don't do what they say you do. And he says, this will glorify God in the day of their visitation. You know what he didn't say? Because I was looking for it. I certainly wanted to read it. He said, and they will stop persecuting you. And it will all go away. If you just do the right thing, they'll leave you alone. Now, there are some today in the churches, you might hear people preach from time to time, who will tell you much that thing. They'll say, if you're doing the right things, whatever they call right, you, you live a perfect life. Everything will be wonderful. You'll be rich and beautiful and all you have lots of friends. And that's what the Christian experience means. That's nonsense. If you read your Bible, you know that's nonsense. Here's a good example of why it's nonsense. Because Peter's response was not that these people would have seen an escape from persecution necessarily. He says, the ones who persecute you, they will glorify God in the day of their visitation. We're talking here about afterlife. He's saying, you very well may go to your death at the hands of persecution. But what your excellent behavior will achieve is one of two things. Either these men who have persecuted you will see your, your commendable behavior. They will be converted by it. They will become believers in the gospel for having seen your response to persecution. And then in the day of their visitation, that's a reference to the moment they will stand before Christ, just as you and I will as well. 
they will be able to glorify God for how they came to know him through the excellent witness of those they, they persecuted. Perfect example, Paul himself. Paul himself was forever remembering, and I would argue haunted by, the image of Stephen being stoned as he approved that moment, right? But Stephen's amazing, commendable, excellent response in the face of that persecution, Lord, pray for them. They do not know what they do, and all that he said in the midst of his testimony, God used that, I believe, to bring Paul to be the kind of man he was in his ministry, to be driven by the gospel, even in the face of persecution. The second way God may be brought glory, on the other hand, is what if these men don't become believers? Well, they'll still stand before Christ. That, that hasn't changed. And that standing before Christ will be for a different outcome, yes. It will be for judgment's sake, absolutely. But there will be no less an opportunity for those men to glorify God as a result of your excellent and commendable behavior. The way I'll put it is this way. There's, there's no such thing as an unbeliever. There really isn't. There's simply believers and not yet believers. Because Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2, verse 9. He says, For this reason also God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see Paul's point? I don't care who you are. I don't care what you think. I don't care whether you go to the grave believing or not. When you face Christ, you'll know He's Lord. You won't have any doubt about it, and your knee will bow and your tongue will confess. So it's so much better to do it now, when that opportunity for grace still is, is there. Because to do it later, it'll be true nonetheless, but it won't gain you what it could gain for the believer today. So Paul goes, or Peter goes on then in verses 13 through 17. He says, we are to submit to every human institution of government. He, say, he lists a couple of examples. He says, whether king or governor, which means whether to the man in charge or to one of his representatives. Another way to put it is, to all forms of government, in whatever form it takes, submit to that government. Now, that doesn't make sense. This, this is the government persecuting Christians. This, this, this is the government taking men and women who believe in Christ and for no other reason than their faith, sticking them on a pole and burning them. Submit to that government. Submit to it. He's essentially demanding here that Christians who are experiencing persecution or were about to experience it must submit to the persecution as it comes from the government. Now, I don't mean submit in the sense of turn yourself in. I don't think he's saying you can't take reasonable steps to avoid persecution. Paul himself, for example, used to be carried out of cities in a basket, right, to avoid persecution. We're not saying that you can't make reasonable effort. He's saying, on the other hand, do not oppose the government. You never saw Paul oppose the government in that sense. He tried to escape persecution, sure, but he didn't go against the government. Peter doesn't say submit as long as the government is doing the right thing. He doesn't say submit as long as it's doing what you want it to do. He just says submit. I often think back to the example a few years back of, of the Alabama judge. Roy Moore, I think, was the gentleman's name. You remember back in Alabama, he, he was insistent that the Ten Commandments were going to be on a, on a stone structure. I don't remember what it was. Monument, I guess. And it was going to sit in the courthouse lobby, come heck or high water. And when the Supreme Court of Alabama said, according to the law, that's not proper, take it out, he disobeyed their order, only to be removed from his own judgeship as a result, the, the Ten Commandments left anyway. It's not like he stopped that from happening. And in the midst of it, he goes around on the talk show circuit talking about how he had to do it because that's what his faith required, right? 
You know, as I understand what Peter is saying here, as I read the plain language of the verses that, that Peter puts here, he did the wrong thing. He absolutely did the wrong thing. Because even when the decisions of the government seem to go against what we believe God's heart is, Peter's own letter says that's not basis to challenge the authority of government. Because I want you to understand what he's talking, who he's talking to and under what circumstances. He's saying, in the midst of the Roman government killing Christians, submit to that government. I don't know what Roy Moore saw in the government in Alabama that caused him to be concerned, but I doubt they were taking Christians out on poles and burning them. So if, he, if Peter is saying to the Christians of his day that submitting to the government under those circumstances was right, how could we turn under our current circumstances and do anything less than submit to the government we find ourselves in? And remember, there's a big difference between submitting and agreeing. There's a big difference between submitting and believing it's the right thing. We're submitting because we're told to submit. The only exception I can find in Scripture, generally speaking, for when a Christian can oppose government is when that government directly orders us to violate God's commandments or His Word. Peter himself did that. If you know the story out of Acts chapter 4, 18, Peter and, and John were ministering and they're summoned, in, as it goes in Acts, uh, before the council of, of Jewish leaders. And they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So they go on, speaking the gospel. Later, they're dragged before these same men in chapter 5 because they violated that order. So here's what happens when they get dragged before these men in chapter 5, verse 27. When they had brought them before them, they stood before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So Peter himself you, you know, took opportunity to oppose the leaders appointed over them in government, in the case of the Jewish council, when he saw their orders as conflicting with God's orders. But Peter's readers here are not in trouble because they have found themselves in that kind of a situation. They can't use that excuse. They're in trouble for disturbing the peace. They're in trouble because they've been acting as criminals in the eyes of the population in the way they've been contending with Jews in the temple or in the tabernacle, in the uh, local synagogues. That's not the same thing as saying God has commanded me to do something and you're trying to stop me. That's just being uh, dumb. That's not being excellent and commendable in your behavior. <clears throat> I think it's clear as you read these verses that people in Peter's day had been abusing their freedom in Christ. He tells them in verses 16 and 17, don't use your liberty in Christ as a covering, which means as an excuse for your evil. He points that out here in the letter. He says, you know you've got certain liberties in Christ. We have liberty in Christ, freedom. The freedom from not being under the Jewish law anymore. The freedom to live under uh, you know, whatever customs and practices make sense to us. But you cannot take that freedom to mean that you don't submit to a pagan government. It doesn't mean you have the freedom to excuse and disobey all civil authority. That's not what this freedom in Christ gives you rights to do. And he's concerned that because they've taken their freedom to mean that, to, to appeal to this higher authority, I don't have to obey Caesar, I've got God to obey, and use it as an excuse for their own sin, they've set such a bad witness now that they've given rise to these slanderous accusations and they've given it some measure of credibility. And what does that do? It brings upon them the persecution that Nero wants to project. See how they only ended up hurting themselves in the long run by how they decided to carry out the, their, their behavior? This is why I say that judge in Alabama was wrong. 
God's word does not demand that we post the Ten Commandments in the courthouse lobby. That's not in the book. God, on the other hand, demands that we keep His commandments. And if you are to keep His commandments to include the word that Peter writes here, then you submit to the government above you and you put them in the courthouse. And when they say, take it out, you say, I don't like this, but I'll obey because that's my Christian witness. Let me take it out. Let me ask you this. Was that man's Christian witness improved by how he carried on or not? I would argue that to an unbeliever, he simply confirmed the stereotype that a Christian is pig-headed and stubborn and, and doesn't care about other people and only wants what they want for themselves and they're not bendable, they're not interested in doing the right thing. You know, the rules are only made to be broken as long as it fits their Christian point of view. I don't see how that improved his witness. But I do believe if I'm looking at his behavior and, and, and considering what Scripture has to say, I can't endorse it, nor any behavior that comes along similar to it. And I'm not his judge. I should make that clear as well. We submit to the authorities in government over us because God has put them in that role. We are told in verse 15, it is the will of God that these men rule over us. So in a sense, you're submitting to God. You're submitting to his authority and his wisdom in putting those men into the roles they have. Romans puts it this way. Romans 13, verse 1, Paul says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. When I read that verse, I, I can't help but have my mind drawn back to that judge again, because his basis for wanting to oppose government was because he wanted to honor the Ten Commandments, right? Look what this verse just said. Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, the commandments of God. The supreme irony was the man who wanted to uphold God's commandments was violating God's ordinance by not submitting to authority in the way that God had ordained it. When we rebel against government, we actually rebel against God in the sense that we rebel against his will in having appointed those men to leadership. And that doesn't mean he appointed men because they're good or holy or Christian even. It's just in his intelligence and wisdom to do what he's done. The second reason we do this is because it might bring some men to know the truth. But I want to say this very quickly out of what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says God is not partial with respect to who he will bring salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he says, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. When Paul uses the term all men, he defines it for us in these verses. He says what all men is. All men is not every human being. What he means by all men is all kinds of men, all strata, all levels. Because in Paul's day, like the same in Peter's day, the ones that were receiving the gospel were the peasant. They held out no hope that the Roman procurator, the Roman governor, much less Nero Caesar himself, would ever hear the gospel and believe it. So they gave no credit to that possibility. They certainly didn't pray for those men. They certainly didn't look to them as authorities they needed to obey. They looked to them as, as evil men who were trying to kill them and persecute the church. Paul, and then I think Peter as well, is saying, hey, who are you to give up on them? Who are you to assume God does not have a plan to bring some of them to faith? Who are you to assume that it is not the case that through your prayers and petitions and through your excellent commendable behavior, you might not have the opportunity to influence them? What would influence a man in, in authority? 
If you want to make a man in authority have some respect for you and what you think, how do you achieve that? What do men in authority want? Respect for authority, right? I'll give you some examples. Are you going to be an effective witness to your boss in the midst of a personnel review where he's having to give you a failing grade for your performance? Is that a good opportunity for you to say, oh, by the way, let me tell you about Christ. How about the time you're on the side of the road and the police officer is writing you the speeding ticket? Is that a good time to turn to him through the window and say, by the way, while you're writing that, let me tell you about the man who died on the cross for our sin. How about when you are in the courtroom and the judge is pronouncing sentence for your crime? You want to witness to the judge in that moment? Or to the IRS agent as he finds all the ways you've cheated on your taxes? You see my point. If you want to impress men in authority for the sake of the gospel... The easiest and best way you can bring them to a point of respecting what you have to say is if you show yourself to be a respecter of authority. As someone who keeps commendable behavior. You'll have a very powerful opportunity to witness to men like that. So, we are to be excellent in our behavior because obeying authorities over us might lead us to be free from their accusation and consequently free from persecution. Secondly, because it might give us an opportunity to show that we are obedient to the will of God And then finally, because it gives us an opportunity to witness to those very same men in authority who won't respect us if we don't show any respect for authority. Next week, we're going to cover the three principal walks of life in which Peter wants to illustrate what it looks like to live as an alien, as a foreigner. He's going to talk about servants, which, as I said, is really about how we live and work in the world, how we serve others in the world through our jobs primarily. Secondly, wives. And then third, husbands. So next week would be a good week to bring your servant or your spouse. If they're one and the same, I'll counsel you afterward. (laughs) Dear Heavenly Father, take the words that were spoken today, Father. Take from them the error, the mistakes, and all those things, Father, which are not according to your will. Put them aside in the hearts of our listeners here. And Father, as only you can do, replace them with your truth. But in all things spoken, Father, whether true or not, I pray, Father, you could put it to good work, that you would convince us, Father, of the need to be holy and set apart, to be blameless, to be commendable in our behavior, to be witnesses in this world as a foreigner should be, setting good examples so that your gospel message, Father, would not be held back and constrained by the poor lifestyle of its messengers. But rather, Father, we might amplify, if possible, that message. We might make it receivable, if that were our power. But... In no way, Father, could we be a barrier. I pray that you would give us the opportunity to know where we are a barrier and where our lives, Father, are not excellent. With that conviction, drive us to be more like you. And we ask, Father, a blessing as we go to eat today with our fellowship and that you would be with us in our time together and in the company we share, that you would guard our words and open our hearts and show the love that is within us. And thank you, Father, for this gathering, as always, that the church might be a light and a beacon in this city, and you could put it to great work. And we give you praise, asking that if it be your opportunity or be your will, we could come back next week to complete uh, this chapter and to move forward in this study. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.